listening to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in DC, and I'm your hardworking host, Kiko Bourne. If you're tuning in for the first time, Lunch Agenda is a virtual lunch date that offers us all a chance to be food activists. So what do I mean by food activists, you might wonder? Well, I think a lot of people in America these days are transitioning from being foodies who like to cook and eat deliciously to foodies who want to help fix the food system. So on Lunch Agenda, I serve as your guide in conversation with doctors, policymakers, lunch ladies, and others who don't often get the microphone. We're back today after a juicy summer break for both Jack in the Full Service Radio studio and myself. But I've actually been pretty busy ramping up for a new chapter of my life that I want to quickly share with my listeners. I've become a teacher. For several years, I've been curious to take the food communications work I've done for a decade um, in more in the direction of direct food education. And this spring, I was fortunate to land a gig at an amazing sustainability-focused public charter school in my neighborhood of Washington, D.C. It's called Mundo Verde. I'm now about five months into working there as the cooking and gardening teacher. And now that school's back in session, I teach five classes of kindergarten through fifth graders every day. So this is why I'm so excited to launch into Lunch Agenda's new fall series, Teaching Food, which will highlight some of the most brilliant work I know in the food education space. I'm hoping to come out with new ideas and techniques for teaching the friends, which is what we call students, and Mundo Verde. But for this topic to be worthy of a Lunch Agenda series, it needs to be actionable for you, my listeners. So here's how I think it will be. I believe we all teach food in some way. I think my husband teaches food to my daughter. My colleagues at work teach food when they serve their homeroom classes their lunch. So if you're listening, I encourage you to maybe take a moment right now and think about who stands to learn about food from you and start listening from there. I have a power-packed lineup planned for you during this teaching food series, and I figured why not start with the best? So today as my guest, I have the food teacher of all food teachers, Marion Nessel, a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health, author of almost 10 books, soon to be 10 books, I believe, and more. I'm going to be asking Marion about her view of the in-school food education landscape from elementary all the way through the university-age students and adults that she teaches. But before we start talking with Marion, let's get Lunch Agenda going with our weekly dose of Kiko's Food News. My favorite symbol of going back to school is the apple. So there's, I'm going to start with apples because there's been some exciting news in American apples. First, in the race for the most popular apple in America, the Red Delicious has held the top spot for more than half a century but it's likely to lose its title this year. The U.S. Apple Association is projecting that the Gala Apple will will beat the Red Delicious for the top spot. The Granny Smith, Fuji, and Honeycrisp are expected to rank third, fourth, and fifth, with the Honeycrisp in particular surging in popularity. Second Apple news. Apple farmers across the nation who are entering their peak sales season say the triple threat of tariffs from Mexico, China, and India will challenge their business dangerously this fall. 
India in particular has been one of the fastest growing international markets for U.S. apples, growing 94% year over year. So it would be a big market to lose in the face of tariffs. And if fewer apples are being sold to foreign buyers, domestic competition between producers will intensify, specifically between the two top producing states of Washington and New York. A couple other quick headlines from the past few weeks that we were off, because I want to make sure you didn't miss a couple big food news items from the summer. First, the New York Times reported about how the term organic doesn't mean much when it's used to describe restaurants, which aren't required to undergo the same rigorous certifying process by the Department of Agriculture as farms and food companies. Under the department's current rules, restaurants may call their food organic if they have made a reasonable, quote, reasonable, effort to use organic ingredients. There's no precise definition of what constitutes a reasonable effort and no monitoring body for enforcement. So Lunch Agenda listeners, be on the lookout, be skeptical, um, know what organic means and doesn't mean when you see it. Finally, in, in the first court case against the chemical company Monsanto, a San Francisco jury found that its signature products herbicides Roundup and Ranger Pro are associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and that the company acted with malice and negligence in failing to warn consumers. They awarded the plaintiff $39 million in, in, in damages and $250 million in punitive damages. Sorry, the 39 was compensatory and $250 million punitive. This is a huge win for those who have been sounding the alarm about the dangers of these herbicide products for years. It's also the first case to challenge the chemical, the chemical behemoth, which was recently acquired by Bayer, about its weed killers. And there are more than 4,000 other plaintiffs waiting in the wings. So I wanted to make sure all of you knew that that was happening. It happened several weeks back. But um, that's your lunch agenda of Kiko's Food News for today. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm on the edge of my seat to start asking Mary and Nestle all the questions I've been holding in my head all summer. So stay tuned. Welcome back. You're tuned into Lunch Agenda, food's full service radio's food activism show that helps you make an impact through your food choices. I'm your host, Kiko Bourne, and today is the first episode of our new fall series that I'm calling Teaching Food. It's estimated that about 5 million American public school students study HOMAC, or Family and Consumer Sciences, or whatever that school might call it, every year, learning everything from gardening to nutrition to meal planning to cooking. And there's no doubt that the field of food studies has evolved in the past few decades. Students these days are more likely to spend their class time learning about healthy habits than they are about baking snickerdoodles, which is all I remember from my home ec class in middle school. There's one woman that may be more responsible than anyone for the evolution of what is taught about food in school, and that is Marion Nessel, who I'm excited to welcome onto Lunch Agenda today. Marion is the Paulette Godard and she might correct my pronunciation, Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University in the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003 and from which she just retired in September of 2017. She's also the author of nine books, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, What to Eat, and she has a tenth to be published next month. 
So, Marion, welcome to Lunch Agenda. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to, to let me pick your brain. So let me start with an icebreaker. This actually was a question submitted to me by my friend Ellie. As a nutrition professor who teaches us what to eat, what is your favorite indulgence? Ice cream. Ice cream. Okay, that was easy. <laughs> Next. Okay. That was easy. Everything in moderation. Right, right. Absolutely. That's something. Um, I think well, food is one of life's greatest pleasures, and you should enjoy what you eat. Absolutely, absolutely. Just don't eat too much of it. Right, right, right. So maybe by the small, the small containers of ice cream if you have trouble with... With self-control. So, Marion, I recently read an article in Civil Eats, which is maybe my favorite food system media outlet, um, titled, Can Teaching Kids to Cook Make Them Healthier Later in Life? And the article talked about results of a study of subjects that began when they were college age and ended when they were adults 10 years later. Did you have a chance to see that one? I don't think I did. Okay. Or if I did, I just skimmed it quickly. Okay. Um, it just, you know, what, what it revealed was that those who self-reported that they had, quote, adequate cooking skills by college age, which was the beginning of the study, were more likely to be preparing meals with vegetables and eating less fast food as adults 10 years later. And I, I just, I thought that that was a big claim, um, and it, it, it almost felt more more um, correlative than causal, you know, meaning like I wondered after reading that study whether it could be that the cooking classes they had in school were the reasons they had habits of cooking at home as adults or whether there were other factors that probably that might have influenced equally whether or not that whether or not they were cooking, you know, from scratch at home versus eating fast food. Well, they're certainly not going to be cooking from scratch at home if they don't know how to cook. Good point. That's just, that's just not going to happen. Right. And one of the big barriers to people's eating vegetables is not knowing how to cook them and not knowing what to do with them. Um, you know, a lot of people feel that vegetables are bitter or don't taste good or they don't like the texture or whatever. There are a million reasons. Um, but vegetables are absolutely delicious when cooked appropriately. But if you don't know how to do that, you're not going to. Do you want to hear a and story that's inspiring about that? I was talking, absolutely. I was talking to my fifth graders today about Brussels sprouts. And when I was in fifth grade, if the teacher would have talked about Brussels sprouts... I think a wave of yuck faces would have swept the room. And right now, every fifth grader in that class was, was yakking and yakking about how much they love Brussels sprouts. So there is, there is change happening. But I interrupted oh you. What were you going to well, say? Well, no, that's, that's, that's very interesting. It would be interesting to know what goes on in their homes because I know plenty of people who um, wouldn't dream of eating a, a Brussels sprout as an adult even now. Um, and that's too bad because they can taste pretty good if they're cooked decently. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to say about cooking skills. I also had home economics cooking. The girls took it in when I was in the eighth grade. And it taught me a lot. And I've used, I mean, we started with cookies. Who didn't want to know how to make cookies? Uh, but that's not a bad way to begin, and then you go on from there, and it takes the fear away of trying to deal with something that you don't know how to deal with. They teach, they taught us how to read cookbooks and how to follow a recipe, um, and to be confident about 
your ability to take something that you didn't know what to do with and make something out of it that tastes good. Right. And I'm already jotting notes because I was planning to make an Ethiopian family style dish with my with my students as the first dish we cook together next week. And I'm now thinking, hold on a second, start with something that they trust and that's safe. And, you know, maybe that dish is less familiar, even though, even though Washington DC is such amazing Ethiopian food around. So um, that's a good thought about, you know, starting with the cookie. And it's also, I just have to say it's crazy. Them small. Okay. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Um, it's so insane to me that the girls took Comex, so the boys were doing shop, I assume. They were taking shop, wow. yeah. Wow. I mean, I thought we all ought to be taking both. Yeah, what a crazy you know, and idea. That, and that uh, everybody needs to know how, although nobody can deal with cars anymore. But in those days, cars were mechanical, not electronic. And it, was, it would be great to have known how to fix them. Absolutely. Maybe I wouldn't have... Um dropped out of physics if I had had a little bit more exposure to things tangible like cars. Um, so, so Marion, I want to ask you a little about the, the food studies program you built at NYU. Um, you know, you've, you, I know you were intentional about having the program be interdisciplinary and, you know, having it tackle food as a complex political issue. What were your biggest challenges in building a curriculum that that really serves the food system today or that really served it in the year that you started the program? Well, we started the program in 1996, and uh, it was just a lucky configuration of happenings. Um, our, we, the, the department had a program that brought in about a million dollars a year in tuition, and it was removed from our department and moved into another school at NYU, leaving us with a big income gap. And when the dean came to me and said, how do you feel about this? I said, well, it depends on what I get. And she said, what do you want? And I said, food studies. And she said, what's that? And that was the biggest barrier and actually remains a barrier even though there are now food studies programs or their equivalent in most universities in the United States. Everybody's teaching about food now. But at the time that we started, we had to convince people that food was something that was worthy of serious academic study. People just didn't understand it. It's just what people eat. What could possibly be academic about it? And I'm usually pretty good at that kind of thing. And I could explain that not having enough food and having too much food are the two biggest public health problems the world faces, and they affect billions of people. And food is a trillion-dollar business in the United States alone. There's plenty to study about that. It's involved in culture. It's involved in international trade. It's involved in absolutely everything, climate change, business, anything that anybody is concerned about. Food is right there in the middle of it. And why that wasn't obvious to everybody was something that we had to overcome and work very hard on. Um, But, you know, now... It's taught everywhere and has expanded, and there are lots and lots of people who are interested in food and get it right away. 
And and I think, I'm not sure you've used this word, but one word that I struggle to explain to my students is food system. Do you use that word in your teaching? And, and oh, if absolutely. so, how do you define yeah. it? You know, yeah. especially boil down <laughs> for start, elementary I start school. the class by defining it. Great. Everybody has a, you know, a personal definition of what it means. But we teach, we, we have in our department kind of tracks a track in food systems, a track in food and culture, and a fact, and a track in food entrepreneurship. Um, and the I teach in the food systems track mostly, and start out by saying it's just everything about food. It starts out from how food is produced all the way to the food that you eat and the waste that you have to deal with. The entire cycle of production and consumption of food is what a food system is. And then you tease out different parts of it that you're concerned about. But certainly today's enormous interest in food waste is a food system issue. Right, right. And you, I read a quote in, that you had from another interview where you said, I teach food advocacy and I think there are ways to do food advocacy that are likely to be much more effective than others. So what does an effective food advocacy lesson look like to you? Well, there are rules about food advocacy, just like there are rules about everything else. Um, And those rules or guidelines, I suppose is a better word, are based on uh, centuries of experience with advocacy of one kind or another. The kinds of advocacy programs that tend to work are ones that have a very clearly defined goal. They know who, uh, the, the people who are doing the advocacy, know who is possible, who or what is possible um, as a target of that goal. Um, and they know what they're targeting the advocacy toward. There is an extraordinary amount of uh, organizing of allies and Mm -hmm. recruiting allies who are also interested in the same advocacy goal. It's not something that you do on your own. Right. Um, And the ways of achieving the advocacy goal are very well thought through. Yeah. The the tactics, the strategies. Very often, uh, food advocates don't really have a very clearly defined goal that they want. They're just critical of something and they want something to change without being specific enough about what needs to change and who is capable of making that change happen. And I think thinking through all of those issues in advance makes for a much more successful advocacy campaign. And of course, there are examples of really, really well thought out advocacy campaigns that worked splendidly. The Berkeley soda tax is my favorite Mm -hmm. example. I've heard you talk about that one. Because they were so thoughtful uh, and deliberate about how they went about that, and it worked. Uh, One of the most effective parts of that was door-to-door canvassing of people in low-income areas of Berkeley uh, to talk to people about what it meant to have type 2 diabetes in your family. And how drinking uh, sugar-sweetened beverages contributed to that. Right, right, right. And they were successful in um, creating that tax, right? Right. Oh, yeah, with a 76 
percent vote. Voting margin, and a, yeah. You know, an astonishing voting margin yeah. in an era in which you you're lucky if you get fifty and a half percent. They got seventy six percent of the voters. Right, right. In favor right. of the tax. I mean, Absolutely. that's an extraordinary achievement. So. Beyond teaching, you know, approaches to advocacy, and and it honestly, it really resonates with me simply what you said about being targeted in who you're trying to, you know, affect. Um, Because sometimes I think that people who consider themselves advocates for food systems issues, you know, we feel so passionately from a personal level, but we're not clear enough with our targets. So that's one key bucket that I, that I think it sounds like you try to empower your university students with or your audiences when you're speaking to them. What are the other key lessons that you want your students to leave NYU's program with? That advocacy is a good thing for them to be doing. I mean, our students come in wanting to change the world. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to change the world, they need tools to do that. And a lot of our teaching is focused on giving them those tools or uh, teaching them how to uh, obtain those tools on their own. Uh, they need to know how to write. They need to know how to speak. They need to know how to organize. Right, right. Um, they need to know how to attract allies and how to forge alliances with people uh, and how to have any group that is the target of advocacy be absolutely involved in the entire advocacy program right from the beginning so that you're not going to, into a community and telling an, a community what to do. Absolutely. You're working from within that community. Right. What was the most... Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, to get what to get what they want. Right. What was the Berkeley um, soda tax campaign the most powerful situation where you were doing that, starting in the community that you were trying to help, or is there well, any I other was, story? I wasn't involved in it at all. Okay. I live in New York. So, is there any particular campaign from your life that that you really felt you lived that approach? Uh, no, mostly uh, I was involved in campaigns that I thought w- weren't going to work because they weren't using that approach. Ah, wow. And I've certainly been involved in a couple of public health campaigns um, that didn't follow those kinds of guidelines that imposed an idea on a community that the community wasn't interested in and that was wrong for the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've certainly seen those. Right. But I'm not in the trenches. I'm in the classroom. Sure, sure. So one more question about what you think is valuable to teach your students. It seems like the newest body of knowledge in you know the sustainability conversation is that of soil health and regenerative agriculture. I'm wondering whether there's enough evidence that thoughtful, whether you think there's enough evidence that thoughtful attention is being paid to the health of our soils and really kind of shifting the focus of agriculture, that this trend is worthy to be, you know, if, if it is a trend, that this is worthy to be t- worthy of being taught in school. Well, we are teaching this. Okay. Um, you know, if you want to grow plants and crops, you've got to have nutrients in the soil. And if you want to have nutrients in the soil, you have to put back anything that you take out. Right. Uh, right. from whatever it is you're growing, and all you have to do is go to a farm or even have a raised bed in your backyard, and the the, the health of the soil is an obvious issue in whether you're able to grow 
plants or not. And would you say that that is, that is more on people's lips now, or have you always had that as a theme of, of your courses? Well, there are, you know, it's, you know, I, there, there are people who've been arguing this for decades and decades right. and decades. Right. It's certainly something that seems to be much more in public discussion now. Right, right, right. I noticed that too. I mean, um, Albert Howard, way back in the forties mm. and fifties, was arguing about the need to have soil that was regenerated and I mean it's so obvious if you take it out you got to put it back either that or you use artificial fertilizers with all the problems that they cause right right yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to having um, a lesson with my students this year about soil you know soils healthy not dirty there's just this dirty stigma where people just kind of want to brush it off to the side I think and not appreciate it as a living organism that is so crucial to us um, so I'm hoping that that one goes over well. I hope you have terrific fat worms. <laughs> the worms are everything. You know that's all that the elementary school kids want to do is investigate the worms. Um, this is Kiko Bourne. I just want to pause and say I'm talking with Marion Nessel. You've tuned into Lunch Agenda, and we're talking about her identity as a food educator and wisdom she has for the rest of us food educators. So Marion... I'd love to switch gears um, now and pick your brain a little bit about the specific chapter of food education that, that is elementary school education. And I know that that's not where you have spent your career teaching, but it is where I sit day to day as the cooking and gardening teacher at a, at a bilingual public charter school. So, and I should actually just pause and say, I think it's such an amazing thing when a school has a full-time food teacher. And, and I just want to give my school so much credit for seeing the value in having a food teacher that connects to the sustainability mission through talking about all the cycles that are involved with food. Um, but I, I do know that my school is in the minority of having a full-time position. And so, Marion, you kind of were alluding to this earlier, but what argument would you make to a tightly resourced principal or superintendent about the value of having a, a cooking or gardening teacher on staff or even a food studies course offered? Well, it has to do with level of engagement, um, particularly if you're dealing with students who have difficulty engaging. Um, there is nothing more engaging than growing food and having kids learn how to do that, learn how to grow the food, harvest the food, prepare the food, eat the food. They're totally into it. And I've been to a lot of schools that have garden programs, um, and the gardening program can be completely integrated into the academic program as well. Um, you can have students using their mathematics and their arithmetic to try to do recipe development and scale up recipes and scale them down and figure out how many things you need to feed a certain number of people. Um, so it fits with mathematics. It fits with biology. Um, it fits with, it certainly fits with language because you can have the kids learning whatever the language, the, the second language is. You can have them learning all the words in that language sure. while you're engaging in these activities. Um, and the kids, most of the kids, really, really, really like it in a way that they don't always like the more um, not hands-on academic classes. So it's the integration, it's the excitement, 
it's um, the grounding of a lot of the kinds of activities that are going on that are that are kind of centered on this that I think just add to a school without adding an enormous cost to it in most cases. Right. And I and I really appreciate what you said about, you know, building students' language skills. My sister, who's an amazing food educator in Brooklyn, actually, you know, talked to me before I started this job about how I am creating a vocabulary for these students to, you know, to talk about things in the natural world and things in the kitchen that just might not be words that they would be exposed to otherwise. So mm-hmm. uh, that really does play out in, in a bilingual setting, as you say. So mirroring the question I asked you about university curriculums, how would you tackle planning a year-long elementary school curriculum? Like, there are so many things that I could teach. What would be the must, the must-learns in your mind that every student should, should graduate from elementary school feeling confident that they know about in the food system? Well, I would say cooking. Cooking. I really, I really would because the if you don't have cooking skills, and they don't have to be, they don't have to be chef quality, quality. cooking skills. Sure. They just have to be basic cooking skills. How you take a basket of different kinds of foods and turn them into something that people want to eat. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you do that? It's not that difficult. And how do you do it quickly and easily and confidently? And if you have that skill, then that's you've got that for your lifetime. The throw thing, the throw a dinner together skill. I, oh I yeah, agree. absolutely. I agree. And have something that tastes that people are willing to eat. Right. Um, without getting into questions of, you know, are your knife skills perfect or or whatever, those are great things to have. But the real issue is being able to look at foods that are on the market that are not very expensive and think, what could I do with this that would be really yummy? Yes, Absolutely. Let's talk about the psychology of teaching food. You wrote in your book, I was just paging through a copy of Eat, Drink, Vote, and you wrote that, quote, the personality argument doesn't work for children. Most kids cannot choose their diets unless parents let them. So that's the end of the quote. So how else can we make what them feel? What cartoon did that? That's my cartoon book. What cartoon did that refer to? I I don't remember. I, I there are so many great cartoons in that book. It's my favorite book of yours, and I don't remember. It was that awesome chapter where your you know kids are getting marketed to all day. Um, but but to your point, you know kids don't get to choose the foods they they eat all the time. So how do we make them feel invested? In you know, in the idea that their choices matter. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure where all of that fits in. But most of the research on um, issues around kids eating and getting kids to eat uh, say that it's a question of exposure. You expose foods to children as often and in great variety, and they get to pick and choose among those and develop their own tastes. Um, when kids are are invested, they ask their parents to go to the store and get whatever it is they want to eat. Right, right. Um, teach them how to cook. Let them prepare dinner. Right, right. The earlier, the better. And a related issue that 
I've identified um, in my short career as a teacher is that it's one of my, you know, deep held beliefs is that Americans don't pay enough for food, that food is, is undervalued. Yet, of course, many of the students in my classes, you know, are from families that qualify for free and reduced lunch, you know, aren't, their families aren't going to be able to buy the happiest chicken on the shelf. So what's the answer? Do I, you know, not teach the happy chickens lesson and talk about what responsibly raised meat is for fear that they'll go home and then kind of hit a dead end? Or how well, do I navigate food that? Systems. This is a food system issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you ask the question, why? I mean, first of all, you don't want food to be so expensive that people who need it can't get it. Right. You want to have a food supply that everyone in the population has access to. Right. Um, so the more expensive foods uh, are, you know, that, that's fine. But the reason that foods are priced the way they are has to do with supply and demand, of course, but it also has to do with politics. And you're really asking a political question um, about how you get kids to understand the politics of things like pricing and why foods in low-income low areas are often not as high quality as they are in higher-income areas. I mean, I remember when I lived in Washington, D.C., I lived in Adams Morgan, and there was a supermarket a couple of blocks from my house that had the worst food in it I've ever seen. And yet that same chain of grocery stores in another neighborhood would have perfectly wonderful food. That's politics. Right. That's so interesting. That's, be- that's because the people in the community weren't complaining. Right. And they it's, didn't feel they had political power. Yeah. And that's something that is absolutely still on the, the Washington, D.C. advocates' lips. You know, I started Lunch Agenda with a, with a series about a grocery walk because there is still such a discrepancy. And I'm sitting here talking to you from Adams Morgan, D.C., so it's just pretty amazing that you brought up that example. So, Marion, we, we just have a few more minutes, and I want to make sure that, that this episode, this interview, is as actionable for our listeners as possible. And so I like to end every episode with an action item that you want to offer them. Um, you know, doesn't even have to do with what you teach, but what is one little thing that we can all do in our day-to-day to improve the food system in, in whatever way you want to define improving it? Well, I think two things, if I get to do Please. two things. Um, one is every time you make a choice of a food at a supermarket or any place else you buy food, you're voting with your fork for the kind of food system that you want. Um, if you want local, sustainable, seasonal, uh, fresh foods, you are spending as much money of your food money at farmer's markets as you possibly can. That's a voting with your fork issue. But you're in Washington. you got to get into politics. And for that, I think the easiest way is to uh, find an organization that's working on a food issue that you care about and join it. Just contribute to it in that way, uh, whatever the issue is. And I find that I can go to any town in America and Google uh, food advocacy and the name of the town, and up will pop a whole bunch of organizations. In Washington, there are lots. 
Can you name just a couple, or do you not, not want to favorites? Okay, not that's fair. Not offhand, but I mean, there are food assistance programs, there are food advocacy programs, there's um, farmers programs, there are all kinds of things. Right, there's all kinds of groups. I mean, Center for Science and the Public Interest is the most obvious one. Right. If you're going to get active politically, because they've been around for a long time, they know how to do it. Sure, sure. Is is the National Resources Defense Council based in D.C. or New York? I should know. That. I don't know. Okay. Because their food waste work is also really important for those listeners who who have food waste as their most important issue. Well, that's very actionable. I like your idea of just googling, you know, the place you are in food advocacy, and and I and I trust that we will find lots of places to insert ourselves. Marion, thank you. I I've been taking copious notes. Um, I I have heard you speak in a couple different places, and it's just an honor that you were willing to share your thoughts here on my show. Um, and I want to invite guests or not invite guests, invite my listeners to follow you, follow Marion um, at her website, foodpolitics.com. And she's also pretty active on Twitter at Marion Nessel. And you can see a picture of Marion in action teaching on my own Instagram, which is Kiko Buff. I'll also publish highlights from this conversation on my website, kikosfoodnews.com. Finally, if you want to learn more from Marion, you know, and Marion, I should give you a chance to quickly um, plug your new book, but she's coming out with her new book on October 30th. Marion, do you want to share anything with the listeners about it? Certainly. It's called Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. And it's a book about how food companies fund nutrition research that they can use for marketing purposes and what to do about that. I can't wait to read it. And it's October 30th, right? October 30th. Okay. Congratulations already. Thank you. Um, So next week, we're going to be exploring a key challenge in this food education space, and that's the tension between the cafeteria and the classroom in, 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 um, in elementary, middle, or high schools. Why is it so hard to align these two parts of student life in pursuit of healthier students? So I'm looking forward to digging into this with Lola Bloom of DC Bilingual and Jem Mampara of Fresh Farms Foodprints. Tune in next week, and I'll talk to you then. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.